I'm Scott Aniel, and welcome to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. I have some resources to recommend for you today, as well as uh, looking forward to discussing some matters related to Christianity and culture. We're going to be looking at Psalm 137 again, uh, highlighting a uh, hymn resource and a book that deals with singing in the first century church. But before we do that, I want to let you know about an upcoming conference that I hope will be of interest to you. For a number of years, Religious Affections Ministries has hosted a conference called Knowing, Loving, Ministering, the Substance of Conservative Christianity. On October 1st, we invite you to join me, Mike Harding, Steve Thomas, Ryan Martin, and more for a one-day conference in which we discuss what it means to know God, love God, and minister to his people. The conference will be held on the beautiful grounds of Northland Camp and Conference Center in northern Wisconsin, and each session will center on a portion of 1 Corinthians, where we will find what it means to serve the Lord and minister to his people in a pagan culture. For more information, visit religiousaffections.org forward slash KLM19. Well, in the last episode, we looked at Psalm 137, from which the title of this podcast takes its name, and set some of the historical context, this psalm being written by someone, we don't know for sure who, but by someone who experienced for himself exile in Babylonian captivity. But, once again, understanding this immediate context may cause us to wonder how could this psalm be relevant for Christians living in the 21st century. Surely we don't live under such depressing conditions. There certainly are differences, but remember that both Israel and the church are peoples of God. And what is particularly instructive for us is that the New Testament authors often use language to describe the church's situation today that refers to Israel's experience in exile by way of analogy. So consider, for example, even the idea of Babylon. In the New Testament, particularly in the book of Revelation, the title of Babylon is given to the enemies of God. No matter how someone interprets what exactly Babylon refers to in Revelation, it becomes in the New Testament representative of everything that is contrary and hostile to God, to his worship, and to his people. And isn't that exactly how scripture describes this present age? How does the New Testament describe the world in which we Christians find ourselves? Well, Galatians 1.4 calls it the present evil age. 2 Corinthians 4.4 identifies the God of this world as one who has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The God of this world is one who Ephesians 2.2 calls the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Jesus said that this world hates him because he testifies about it that its works are evil. So in other words, there appear to be striking similarities between the Babylon in which the Jewish exiles found themselves and how the New Testament describes the age in which we Christians find ourselves. Or think about the idea of Zion or Jerusalem. Of course, in Psalm 137, these refer to a literal city. But even in the psalm, these titles represent more than just a physical location. They represent the place where God's presence dwelt, the place of his true, pure worship. And in the New Testament, 
The terms Zion and Jerusalem are similarly often used metaphorically in reference to the place of God's presence and true worship. Probably the most vivid example of this is found in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews 12:22, the author is describing Christian worship, and he says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You see, God's presence is in the temple of heaven, And what the author of Hebrews is arguing is that when we Christians worship, we are actually joining with the worship of heaven, uniting our voices with innumerable angels and festal gathering and saints who have gone before us. Ephesians 2.6 tells us that we Christians have been raised up with Christ and have been seated with him in the heavenly places. In fact, in verse 19 of Ephesians 2, Paul calls us fellow citizens and saints of the members of the household of God. And Philippians 3.20 tells us that our citizenship is not here on earth. Our citizenship is in heaven itself. You see, the point is, when we consider how the New Testament describes this present age, it sounds a whole lot like Babylon. And when we consider how the New Testament describes our citizenship in a place of God's presence and worship, it sounds a whole lot like a distant city where we have our citizenship, but where we do not currently find ourselves. And to make this comparison even more apparent, think about how Peter refers to the church today in 1 Peter 1.17. He calls our current situation as Christians the time of your exile. And in chapter 2, verse 11, he specifically calls us sojourners and exiles in this present age. So in other words, we who are members of Christ's church in this present age, are, like Israel, God's people in exile. Like Israel, our citizenship is in Zion, a city far away where God's presence dwells in his temple and where pure worship takes place. And like Israel, we find ourselves by the waters of Babylon amidst a people whose ruler hates God and his worship and his people. So this is why Psalm 137 is so relevant for Christians today. And I hope as we continue to look at the psalm in in future episodes that we'll really see the important implications that Psalm 137 has for Christians living in a post-Christian culture. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land, the psalm asks. Well, I want to highlight a couple resources today that address this very issue. And the first is a hymnal that Religious Affections Ministries uh, published about a year ago. In 1861, a hymnal was published in England that would set the standard for all hymnals to follow. and It was called Hymns Ancient and Modern. This significant hymnal was a product of the Oxford Movement in the Church of England, which was a movement that wished to address both the stagnant piety among formal churches on the one hand, and on the other hand, a tendency towards casual irreverence among growing evangelical movements that had been influenced by revivalism and Victorian sentimentalism. Hymns Ancient and Modern really became the benchmark for all subsequent hymnals, and and it did so for several reasons. First, the editors gave careful consideration to the text-tune marriages in the hymnal. Previously, very fine hymn texts often fell to disuse due to terrible tunes which they were associated with. But Hymns Ancient and Modern contained text-tune combinations that are still commonly used today. But second... While most previous hymnals had little, if any, organization to the order of their hymns, 
Hymns Ancient and Modern was organized theologically and liturgically. It categorized hymns based on their purpose and use within the, in the liturgy and broadly within the church year, and that was unique and helpful to make the hymnal successful. But third, desiring to recover some of what they considered lost in the worship tradition of the church, the editors of Hymns Ancient and Modern translated the best of early and medieval Greek and Latin hymns into English. And they brought some of the oldest hymns into English that are still used today. They translated uh, German Lutheran hymns into English as well. And this really made hymns ancient and modern universal in its contents. It, it, it drew from, from the best of all of Christian tradition. But fourth, although the hymnal editors objected to much of what they considered unhealthy sentimentalism in the recently composed Victorian and evangelical revival hymns, they did make it a point to include what they considered the best of even those hymns. And, and what we still sing today from the Victorian tradition results primarily from those hymns and tunes included in hymns ancient modern, hymns like Abide With Me, The Church's One Foundation, Angels from the Realms of Glory, and other things. And fifth, hymns ancient modern gathered the best of what they considered the modern hymns of the day, uh, including things like Holy, 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 Crown Him with Many Crowns. The, the editor's goal was to sing newer hymns that matched the quality, both in text and tune, of the ancient hymns. And then finally, what made hymns ancient and modern both influential and successful was its restraint. Previous hymnals contained hundreds and hundreds of hymns, one hymnal published in 1855 had 1,281 hymns, far more than any congregation can really sing. And the first edition of Hymns Ancient Modern included only 273. The editors were not trying to market their hymnal to the broadest possible audience, but they chose what they considered to be the absolute best text and tunes as prescriptive, really, for churches to sing. And it worked, and this is evidenced by the fact that many of the hymns that they chose to include are still sung today. Well, as early as 2008, uh, Ryan Martin and I, along with several others of our religious affections authors, began to dream about a new hymnal. And we had really the same goals as the editors of Hymns, hymns Ancient Modern. Rather than being a descriptive hymnal that simply reflected what various churches were already singing, or, or a market-driven hymnal intended to appeal to the largest possible audience, we wanted to collect what we believed to be the best hymns of the English language. We had similar concerns as the editors of Hymns Ancient Modern. We considered much of what has been written in the last hundred years and that has become the dominant song of the evangelical church to be weak compared to the rich heritage of the past. And so we wanted to create a collection that would model the best hymns, both ancient and modern. And so in 2015, we finally began in earnest to move forward with the project. And after two years of labor, we published Hymns to the Living God in the fall of 2017. And by God's grace, uh, we sold the first thousand copies within a few short months, and we've done a second printing. And to my knowledge, at least six churches have adopted the hymnal as their primary hymnal, and a few more are using it as a supplement. I really believe that hymns to the living God is in some ways an heir to hymns ancient and modern in each of the key areas that I mentioned earlier. Like the hymns ancient and modern, we gave careful attention to text tune marriages. We really tried to sort of resurrect some texts that had fallen out of use 
uh, due to poor tunes that had been commonly associated with them. And we carefully organized the hymns according to their usefulness in a liturgy that reenacts our covenant relationship with God through Christ. And we attempted to recover many older hymn texts from the Christian heritage that are rarely sung today by many evangelicals, drawing from the rich tradition, Greek, Latin, Lutheran, German, Genevan, Anglican, Baptist, Methodist, Victorian, Oxford, and more. We tried to recover some of the best of the gospel song movement, like the editors of of hymns Ancient and Modern did with Victorian hymns, and so we included some of those best. Uh, like Man of Sorrows, What a Name, and Great is Thy Faithfulness, and It is Well with My Soul, and Like a River Glorious. And we included some of what we consider the best of the modern hymns that we could find, hymns such as those by James Montgomery Boyce and Paul Jones, uh, Joan Pinkston, uh, and others that we consider hymns that are new, that are modern, but uh, follow in the tradition of, of hymns that have gone before. And we were deliberately restrained in our number of hymns as well. Really, no church can really sing more than 200 different hymns in a given year, and often far fewer. And since our goal was not mass appeal, but rather inclusion of the best, we included 294 hymn texts and 252 tunes. We're truly thankful for those who have found benefit using hymns to the living God, and it's our prayer that it continues to direct people's hearts and mind towards knowing and loving God rightly. So we invite you to look at at classichymns.org where you'll find the hymnal as well as free downloads of of the entire hymnal as well as individual hymns. And we truly hope that this will be a great resource for churches in years to come. Now, on the subject of singing the Lord's Song in a Strange Land, I want to highlight a book that I think is helpful on this subject. And that is a book by Calvin Stapert called A New Song for an Old World. Stapert wants us in the 21st century church to learn from our past, to consider how the church fathers of the first four centuries or so dealt with this question of what should we be singing in the midst of a pagan culture. Really, if you think about it, the things that we are facing today in the 21st century are increasingly becoming very similar to what Christians endured uh, prior to the legalization of Christianity in 313 by Emperor Constantine. And it's that context, the first four centuries of the church, that Stapert points to to help us to understand what we should be doing and what we should be singing in a pagan culture today. He argues that the church fathers, despite their differences, show a remarkable consistency in their views on music, both in what they rejected and denounced and in what they affirmed and promoted. He points out that there certainly were differences. On the one hand, you had people like Tertullian who said, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? In other words, Christianity should have absolutely no contact with Greek philosophy. But others, such as Clement, uh, argued that no, there are certain aspects of Greek philosophical thought that are perfectly consistent with Christian theology, And when that is the case, we can find help in the Greek philosophers. So there was a difference there. But Stapert is arguing that despite those differences, all of the early church fathers agreed on their philosophy of music. They all argued that Christians must reject the pagan worship music around them when considering what we are going to sing in the church. He argues we should be no less courageous than were the church fathers 
in holding and promoting countercultural views and practices regarding the music of the larger society and how we appropriate its assumptions in Christian worship and daily life. He calls the church to sing the new song to the Lord among the nations. Sing the new song in this old world, he said, which so desperately needs it. He believes that Christian ideas about music today have been truncated and twisted by naturalistic thought since the Enlightenment. And so he seeks to persuade contemporary evangelical Christians to embrace the patristic heritage of liturgical music based on the Psalms. Not that we need to sing Psalms only, but that the Psalms should provide us with the foundation and basis for what we're singing today. And he shows how the early church fathers all rejected the pagan worship music and they all universally praised the Psalms as the model and standard for what we should be singing today. He says the early Christians can inspire and encourage us by their courageous and unwavering posture against the corrupt and very popular culture of their day. They can teach us that we need to draw a line and they can encourage us to stand bravely behind that line. And the line for Stapert means that the whole Psalter, he says, with its fully orbed expression, should be the central element of Christian music and that the essential stance of the church should be countercultural in a pagan day. So this is a book I highly recommend to you to help you think about how we should be approaching this subject of singing the Lord's song in a strange land. You know, one of the more difficult issues that we face as Christians trying to wrestle through the question of how we should be living in a post-Christian culture, how we should be worshiping in a post-Christian culture, is just the understanding and definition of the word culture itself. There's a lot of discussion about culture these days, but unfortunately few have given any serious thought, I believe, to what culture is, especially in biblical terms. The term culture itself is a concept that has developed really in relatively recent times as a way to explain different behaviors between groups of people. The word culture originally meant something more along the lines of what we would call high culture, but more recently it's come to take on a much broader meaning. British anthropologist Edward Tyler uh, defined culture as, quote, that complex whole which includes knowledge, belief, art, morals, law, custom, and any other capabilities and habits acquired by man as a member of society. And his definition and understanding of culture really has come to dominate the discussion and understanding today. And that understanding has influenced evangelical ways of thought as well. Evangelicals have largely adopted that concept of culture, uh, which can be seen, for instance, in Leslie Newbegin's definition, a British missionary for years in India who returned to Great Britain and realized that his culture was as post-Christian as, as uh, anything else and needed a missionary witness. And he defined culture as, quote, the sum total of ways of living built up by a human community and transmitted from one generation to another. So very simply, culture as it is defined today is the shared behavior of a particular group of people. The question then for Christians should be this. What in scripture best parallels this concept of culture? The idea of culture is a new idea, but are there any ideas in scripture that are similar to the contemporary notion of culture? Well, I think most evangelicals today automatically assume that when the Bible talks about a nation or a race, or an ethnicity, it's the same as the idea of culture. 
This is clear because when most evangelicals define culture as neutral or stress the need for multiculturalism, they appeal to passages that talk about ethnicity, such as Matthew 28, 19, the Great Commission, or Revelation 5, 9, which talks about tongues and people and languages all being around the throne. But what should be evident after a careful biblical reflection is that the idea of nation or ethnicity is not the same thing as culture. The first terms, nation or ethnicity, describe a group of people with a shared ancestry. But the second term, culture, describes their behavior. So while it's true that God created all different kinds of people, and it's true that God will redeem people from every people group, from every ethnicity, all ethnicities are equal under God. These biblical statements and these biblical beliefs do not describe the behavior of people. And that is what the term culture refers to. Culture refers to behavior. In fact, behavior in Scripture is far from neutral. Behavior in Scripture is always either moral or immoral. So while it would be horrendous racism to criticize a person for their ethnicity, for their physical features, or for their ancestry— it is well within biblical practice. In fact, it's, it's biblical mandate to carefully evaluate particular behaviors, whether or not those behaviors are shared by specific groups of people. The New Testament often speaks of behavior with cultural overtones. For example, Galatians 1.13 describes a kind of behavior that formally characterized Paul as a Pharisee. Persecuting Christians was really part of his culture. But that behavior changed on the road to Damascus. And in a similar way, Peter refers to certain behaviors that readers inherited from their forefathers, 1 Peter chapter 1. But those behaviors were nevertheless redeemed by the blood of Christ and they were changed. In other words, part of their inherited culture must be rejected in favor of behavior that is holy. And so Peter says, be holy as God is holy. So, culture, understood biblically as behavior, must be evaluated as moral or immoral because behavior is always a reflection of religious values and beliefs. Or, to put it in the words of Henry Van Til, culture is religion externalized. It's a problem today to blur the distinction between ethnicity and behavior. Instead, we as Christians living in a post-Christian culture absolutely need to celebrate ethnic diversity within churches while also being careful to biblically evaluate cultural behavior. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on iTunes or other podcasting services. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a rating. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Scott Annual. I blog at religiousaffections.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture. Mm-hmm.